I believe this is a lesson seven. It's our last one, I believe, in our series on how to how to study the Bible. And there's new handouts back at the back. And so, interpretive fallacies. And so, at the top of the intro, it's, you know, if you look at top ten mistakes, there's lots of top ten lists, top ten mistakes in this and that. And I found several this morning. If you type in top ten most uh, misinterpreted scriptures. Right, everyone has their own list of this verse, that verse. Most misinterpreted. And so it's interesting to look through those verses and to think, oh, yeah, I remember that. I remember thinking that. I remember thinking that. Or then, you, worst of all, you think, oh, I think that now. Okay, you read a little further. <laughs> so why do you think that um, just looking at lists of mistakes, why is that such a thing that we're interested in? What's the appeal? About ourselves? Yeah. yeah. I do. Oh, I haven't made that mistake. People are looking for a justification. Oh, some other people have made this mistake. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> so they don't feel like they're the only one. I don't want to be the only one in this camp. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. that would be uh, an appeal to that. Yeah. Well, so. I think like you want to make sure that you're not using things that way. That's right. Like, That's right. Dumb. Avoiding the embarrassment. I ask my kids at school. I always have this question at the, cl- at the beginning, like, if there's a word that you wish people did or didn't use about you, what would that word be? And a lot of them, I don't want to be stupid. I don't want to be called stupid. And then like, some of them are like, I don't even say a word. Like they're just very. But yeah. So that that whole fascination with mistakes sometimes helps us even in. Right? At church, at Sunday school, you don't want to, Bible study, you want to say something and everyone just gives you this look like, oh no. Okay. So that's, and that's part of why it can be helpful. Um, so, you know, why is it so important to identify common mistakes that we make in, in interpreting the Bible? Yeah, so that we don't make them. Correct them. Yeah, we can correct them in our own. Mm-hmm. You can recognize them in yourself. Where else could you recognize them? People who you're listening to mm-hmm. at church, people who you are reading, right? So sometimes it's, um, I find that there's a certain grace that you extend, like, oh, maybe. We disagree on this one thing, but if you find that there's a certain person you're listening to or reading and they're continually making mistake after mistake that becomes more recognizable, right, can give you some, maybe move to someone else that's not making those same mistakes, right? And so that's partly as we go into our study. Um, you know, when I went through this, I was, I assumed that I was mostly correct in that if I trace back to when I first believed, I probably have made all the mistakes in this at some point or another. And then there's a point at which you kind, of, you kind of feel embarrassed, right? Like, oh, yeah. And so, and I think there's a humility that we gain when we look at mistakes, too. Um, we want to have an attitude that we never want to come and say, I've reached a place where I don't make any more mistakes, right? And that we're okay with just admitting, oh, yeah, I might be 
I might be wrong about something. And that's especially helpful. Um, a lot of us are, you know, participate in weekly Bible studies, yeah. right? And there's a lot of opportunity. And if we don't come in with that attitude, sometimes we're just stuck on, well, this is what it has to mean. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I know when I was in seminary, I did a lot of teaching before I went to seminary, which is kind of unfortunate. <laughs> and there were many times in class where I just would hear something and I found out that passage meant the opposite of what I thought it meant. And I thought, ooh, ooh. I taught that one. Yeah. Or, yeah. Yeah. I, I remember there was one passage in particular where one message I heard about how man's greatest need is security and significance. And I just thought that was like, if you have Jesus, you have both. Mm-hmm. And I gave that devotional about eight times to different people. Then the guy asked the question, um, where's that in the Bible? And I thought, well, it's... Uh, Sure, it's in there, it's in there somewhere. somewhere, but since he's asking, it probably isn't. And yeah. Yeah, I wish I could have yeah. had to do over there. Yeah. Yeah. I think sometimes those are the, that sometimes God teach it, like has taught me to say, uh, to, to, to maybe listen a little bit more because I used to, as well, we'd come to a question, I would just go out with the explanation and then someone would say, real kindly, um, actually, no, that's not what that means. And they would go into explaining. Oh, yeah, right? So it can be a humbling experience to kind of study your mistakes, to kind of admit them, to recognize them. And it, there's also kind of the aspect of learning how to just gently, um, this can be helpful as you participate and recognize, like, everybody makes different mistakes oftentimes. And based on their background and where they've, what, what kind of teaching they've had, what kind of Bible study they've had, they could have just different ways in which they tend to misinterpret. And so being able to gently do correction and talk about what maybe they're doing, or even just dig a little bit. So let's look at that kind of the first few. So interpretive fallacies. So in A, we've got taking passages out of context. So we know that like context is the number one thing that we should be looking at, right? So if we remove that, that can create some errors, okay? So number one is proof texting, and this occurs. You string together an inappropriate or inadequate series of verses to prove some specific theology. Right? So if you think about the prosperity gospel, the, the preaching that God wants, health, wealth, prosperity for you. They might quote John 14, 14. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Okay? As long as you ask in Jesus' name, God will answer this request. And uh, any, what's so you could you got some verses here. What's what do we see that's kind of wrong with that? <coughs> this is from John 14. 14. This is your chance to refute the prosperity gospel. So Kenneth, Kenneth Copeland believes. Yeah. Right. So let's let's think about the scriptures, right? How can we correct? Right. It does say, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So let's, we've got that one verse there. And so when someone is um, proof texting, oftentimes they're looking at what a large or a smaller passage of scripture. 
usually very small, like a single verse, right? Sometimes a string of verses from different spots, right? That kind of all string together. Kind of like the uh, ransom note where you cut out little words from different newspapers and kind of glue them together to make it say what you want. So let's read a few uh, passages here and see kind of adding some context helps with this. So Gabe, you want to get that 1 John 5, 14 and 15? This is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. Okay, do you see anything in the context there as he's talking about that maybe adds a little bit of different flavor? Okay, yeah, there's a nice little qualifier there, according to his will. Mm-hmm. Let's go, let's look at First John uh, 3.22. Jason, you want to get that one? And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. So what's the, the additional caveat there? Because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. Okay. And then James 4, 1 and 2. Andrew, you want to get that? What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and you do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not have. Yeah, so what's going, what's going on here? How does this context like help inform us about what's going on in terms of asking and receiving? Yeah, Judy. They're asking about like the normal lust and pleasures and um, things of more like selfish or mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So it's kind of the the bad example, right? The, what not to do. Right. So I think sometimes when we when we first start. When we were first a believer, we just hear that whenever people pray, they at the end they say, "In Jesus' name," right, and say, "Okay, that's how I that's how I end my prayers." So, what is it? What's it really telling us? What does that really mean from some of these scriptures? Maybe from the three passages that we looked at. So we pray, and we know that from 14.14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And then we're trying to add the context to what does that mean to be asking something in his name. Does it just mean at the end of the prayer we say, this is in Jesus' name? No? So like we have a little bit of context in these passages. What were the two or three things that we noticed? What do we get from the first John five passage? Yeah, it's a, so asking in Jesus' name is praying for things that are according to Jesus' will. Okay? And then from the first John three, twenty-two, and whatever we ask we receive from him because, right, what was the things that we noticed there? Salvation and 
Yeah, it shouldn't contradict what we're asking and that we also should be obeying his commandments as we're doing this, doing things that are pleasing. And those things ought not to be, right, our lusts and those things that we're envious for that we're fighting and quarreling about, okay, and we're not receiving. So that's kind of example, like if you, oftentimes if you see um, a long explanation and a single verse, right? That's usually a big key or a passage, right? Or a sermon. Today's sermon is on this and they quote one verse and then there's this, the whole sermon, right? It's something just kind of a red flag to look. Are, is there enough context there to really get what the script, what that one verse means? I was having my quiet time the other day. I found a verse that could prove transgenderism. Psalm 7, 14 says, The wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant. But if you look at the fuller context, it says, um, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. Okay. So you right, know, if you cut off this, you just, just cut, at the right you do a little spot. copy and paste and get all the words there. You can kind of. Well, yes. <laughs> right. It's funnier in my mind. I'm sorry. It was good. <laughs> <good. laughs> yes. I thought dad to dad. You know. I, I had it. I had it. <laughs> I was with you. <laughs> We had to we had to work together as a team to bring it to person. All right. So um, one one thing that's really similar. Yeah. Just moving on. Sorry, Becky. Change family. Yeah. So when you think about um, this this proof texting, sometimes that's you know pacing together a whole bunch of things, and sometimes it's just as simple as uh, isolating it completely, just not looking at the paragraph or the passage or the chapter or the book itself as like the purpose of the book. So like, let's read uh, Matthew 18, 19 through 20 here. Okay, so kind of in a sense of isolation, again, if we're outside of the Bible and we just have that passage, right, there's different interpretations that we can reach. One might be, you know, anytime there's two or three believers agreeing on something, then that's, that's God's will. He's going to have to. So what is the context? Let's everybody open your Bibles and go to Matthew 18. You may know off the top of your head. If not, you can kind of read through. What is the context that this is in the midst of? What is he talking about immediately before? Yeah, and what what pass, what verses are those? Yeah, so you want to go ahead and read those? Sure. Thank you. <laughs> if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he re- refuses to 
refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And then the very next part is the passage that we read. And notice that in 15 through 17, you've got, um, if your brother listens to you, but if he does not, take with you one or two witnesses along with you. So there's the two or three people, right? You see there, um, everything should be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses, right? And so then it makes more sense as we get to 18, right? Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, Whatever you loose on earth shall be loose in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you on earth agree on anything. Does that, does that kind of make sense as to how just looking at the passages before that adds a lot to understanding? Yes. Yeah, what's a can you think of a common misuse of that besides I think sometimes when we have the discussion about church and what is church, I think during COVID when we're talking about is this church, and <clears throat> there's an idea, right, that, well, if there's two, if my wife and I are gathered together in his name, then he's in our midst, and this is our church, and we're at home, and right? So you, you can continue to kind of stretch things out further and further the, the more isolated those, those passages become. When that's and sometimes there may be things that you're saying that there's some truth to them, but it's not coming from, that's not what that text is saying. So if you, if you find something, you're like, well, I think that's true. Well, maybe you can find it somewhere else, right? But we don't want to take the original meaning and say, well, it also means this. Okay. Any other thoughts on that before we kind of keep going on either proof texting or isolationism or questions about... I think um, a, lot, a lot of authors will just kind of throw like a verse here, verse here. And if you see them like changing translations quite a bit mm -hmm. to kind of get the right read, that's usually a warning mm -hmm. sign. Mm -hmm. And a good, and like a good way to help is maybe you are reading something that someone has suggested, right? Yeah. Sometimes even before that, they'll say something and instead of even quoting it, they'll just say, John 12, 37, or whatever, right? And they won't even quote the verse. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes it's, go look up the verse, and if it's, okay, that's what it says, then read the paragraph, look at the chapter, and just ask, yeah. does that seem to be what the original meaning was? Mm -hmm. Right? I think that number one way to correct um, isolationism and proof texting is to just make sure that you are always looking at the t context of the verse in which it's written. And this, this is probably maybe one of the, towards the top. I don't know if, if you think about all the mistakes 
it's just in the top top five, maybe. That's why expositional preaching is really helpful because you're always used to understanding verses in context. Mm-hmm. Versus when you hear, let's say, a topical message, it's this verse and this verse and this verse and this verse, and mm-hmm. it's kind of cobbling together verses to have a message yeah. instead of deriving a message from the actual text. Yeah, and I think that's something, I don't know if you guys have ever, there's several that have maybe spent a lot of time in expositional preaching churches, but I think there's probably quite a few in here. I've included that growing up, I've heard a lot of messages from a nun that were more topical. And that's a big thing that stands out is like, just like in reading an article, if you're in a, a many topical sermons, there's just a few mention of verses and then a lot of commentary on the message. What, is, what do those mean? And in expositional, oftentimes it's the passage is the message and yeah. you're just explaining and helping to make clear, exposing what that, that scripture means. So there's a big difference there. Okay, let's keep going. So adding to scripture, right? This consists of bringing truths out of the scripture which weren't there to begin with. So we don't really mean like we're writing in extra words into the, the Bible verse. But by adding, we could talk about this in a few different ways. So the first one would be spiritualizing reading a spiritual or historical truth into a text rather than extracting it from. So we've got an interesting story here. This is Richard, Richard Mayhew. Um, maybe this is, maybe this, hopefully this doesn't describe anyone else and hear their, uh, their experience, but this is a recently married couple. They approached a Southern California pastor for help with their troubled marriage. As a part of the initial interview, the pastor asked, what convinced you that you should marry? The husband recounted how he had gone to his pastor seeking to know the will of God for himself and his girlfriend, who is now his wife. That pastor reminded him, the young man, of how Joshua and the Jews had marched around Jericho several times and how the walls collapsed. Then the pastor suggested that the boyfriend literally walk around his girl seven times. If the walls of her heart collapsed, then he could be sure that God wanted him to take her for his wife. She kept a straight face. Yes. So, ladies, beware if the man starts doing this. Like, let me out. Let me out of the circle. Yes. Or if they propose, will you marry me in Jesus' name? So, how did the pastor, right? So, he's... He's referring to an actual event in the in right in Joshua six fifteen. So what kind of the, what? Let's name and identify. What is the mistake that he's making here? What's this called? Spiritualizing. Spiritualizing. Yeah, he's spiritualizing. He's saying that this uh, historical event recorded in Scripture describing the conquest. Um, is somehow has this deeper spiritual meaning that can be applied in all sorts of contexts. And I've, heard, I've seen similar things like we're going to claim this campus and we'll march around it, right? And everywhere that your foot shall tread, right? Um, blanking on the passage, but kind of the, the whole promised land, Abraham idea, right? So spiritualizing often takes events that took place in the scriptures and says they represent God's work and if we do those same sort of actions Mm -hmm. 
they'll somehow produce equivalent results, right? Where, what are the five smooth stones that you need to pull from the river to slay your Goliath? Does that kind of make sense? Like, that's, that's kind of what we mean by spiritualizing. So what is the one thing that, like, to avoid that, what, what's, what's kind of a common thing we need to do when we read Scripture? How can we avoid making that mistake? I think when you put it into context, <clears throat> it's also asking yourself the question, does this apply to just the audience that I'm reading about? Mm-hmm. And then does that promise, does that action also apply to me? Mm-hmm. Or does it just stay there? Yeah. So does that apply? All right. Does that promise apply to me? What are some other good questions you can ask? I like that whole question asking. You're reading the text. What should you be asking to, to know whether or not this has a spiritual meaning? Or yeah. What kind of text is this? The genre? Yeah, the genre, right? So remember, do you guys remember we talked about different genres, right? We've got epistle, where it's a letter, it's written. Um, yeah. What were some other of the genres? Historic, right? Historical, we got you know narratives, we got poetry, wisdom literature, right? So that influences the way in which we read it, right? If you pick up a newspaper versus a children's book versus a textbook, right? You read them with a certain grid because of the genre in which. Anything else you can ask uh, just to avoid it, right? Is this describing or prescribing? Yeah, great. Those are two really helpful words. Uh, descriptive and prescriptive. And uh, we were talking about this the other day, just um, working with and thinking about music um, or just ways the church functions. Um, so we have the Gospels, but then we have Acts, which has a lot of things that are descriptive that are not necessarily prescriptive. This is the way it happened at the very beginning with the apostles, right? They met in houses. So we don't meet in houses. Are we disobeying the scripture? Right? It's describing something rather than prescribing and saying, from now on, all if to be a church, you must meet in a home. Right? So there's that question, right? Like Sometimes that, it's just describing. Like Abraham took on multiple wives. Right. I mean that's yeah, just describing yeah. Definitely describing. descriptive. <laughs> descriptive, definitely. Right. Okay. And then there's one just I like this question. Why is it important to distinguish between strict interpretation and possible applications? So, and the other question, I mean, maybe to clarify, what would you say if you had to explain to somebody else, you know, a, di- a difference is between an interpretation and an application? Interpretation is what do you, what does this mean? Mm-hmm. Application Yeah, you, your interpretation comes first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the application has more, how is it relevant to? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Good. What about like, um, I think that sometimes we say that there can, we, we have discussions with people about, um, you know, that's, that's maybe what it means to you, and this is what it means to me. So mm-hmm. can there be multiple interpretations? Can there be multiple applications? What would you say to that? I've noticed a lot. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah. So we kind of need to know, like, what do we think about that? Are there multiple interpretations? Are there multiple applications? Is there only one of each? I'll venture a guess. There's only one interpretation. I like that answer. <laughs> there are multiple applications. Okay. Okay. Can you you want to expand? Anyone want to expand or right? Like. Becky would, well, Becky would be happy to. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so if we have a specific... I, I can expand. Okay, go for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's how I'm yeah. <laughs> I, I said she could. Um, yeah, I think anytime, like what's the passage she, like the walls of Jericho, um, mm -hmm. I think there's a couple things in that passage. That, like you have like this grid of what does it say about God? What does it mm -hmm. say about how God relates to man? man relates to God, that relationship, and what it says about man. Mm -hmm. I think some application, you know, the, the bigger point is, God told Joshua, to do this, then I will do the impossible. So you obey me, and, and I'll take care of the rest. Mm -hmm. Right? That's kind of the overall point. And so you have, like, you obey God even if, when it doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. You have God can conquer anything. I mean, so you have all these different ways of maybe applying and kind of doing a sermon. Mm -hmm around it or giving some sort of application yeah. but there's only one real interpretation yeah. or you could even take it as a sign of judgment on just uh, you know God mm -hmm. often uses his people to judge mm -hmm. um, you know unbelievers mm -hmm. not that we have to do it in, in every case you have to contour it with Israel and that special commission and relationship yeah. now the interpretation what we're looking for is what does God intend all people to understand yeah yeah all, this you know. is the the because it's a revelation of himself. Yes, and he can give multiple interpretations mm -hmm. of his own mm -hmm. words or his own story mm -hmm. in scripture. Um, but that's the question we're asking: is what is God showing humankind about Himself? Mm -hmm. And applications is how do we live in light of this? Mm -hmm. And that depends on where you are, when you are, right. what you're facing. All those yeah. things. Yeah, I told you she could. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> perfect. I think the, one of the recent ones for me was like interpreting. You know, submission to authorities. You know, I'm thinking about Romans 13 and light of COVID and all the, you know, mandates and closing down and like there's a lot of application behind when do we submit and obey? Is there any time that we don't? And there's God has revealed those answers in His Word, but He has not laid out every single application of how we should apply those things, right? So you go to Scripture to find out the truth that God's revealed, and then use those truths to apply them to your specific. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's there's many applications. So and I think just knowing the difference is helpful and always to think through that. Is this, are we differing on how to apply what the agreed upon meaning is? Or are we disagreeing on what the, is actually being revealed? Okay. All right, this one happens a little bit in our context, nationalizing, all right? Seeing one's own country as the recipient of national promises made by God and Bible to Israel, right? And so I think that, you know, in places where, um, like the United States, in certain parts of the country and at certain times, there's a certain belief that 
this is a you know a Christian nation, right? And it would be awesome if we were all right Christians or God's chosen people. I don't think anyone says that, but maybe sometimes we feel like and the home of the brave, right? You get this <laughs> patriotism, right? And so knowing the difference, right, of when is God speaking to Israel and just Israel, right? And when does that maybe, is there any application uh, to us? So here's an example. You've probably heard 2 Corinthians 7.14, right? You got it? Noah, you got it? Oh, Second Chronicles. Yeah. <laughs> and my people who are called by my uh, by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn uh, from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal heal their land. And who's that to? Probably farmers. Crops are struggling. And I think and should be if. It starts out with if, right? If my people. This is a great verse. It is. Let's go back to second uh, second chronicles. Just find the farmers that he's talking about. just ask a few questions. So who was uh, speaking these words? God was speaking them, right? Who was he, who was receiving these words? What was the setting? Yeah, to Solomon. And we see that where in the passage? In 12. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him. Mm-hmm. And then this was in the midst of what had happened, if you just look a little bit before, what had just been happening. Right. So they had built the temple, dedicated the temple. In the nation of Israel, yes, just to clarify. Yes, it wasn't the, uh, where's the, where's the Mormon temple, Utah? <laughs> wasn't in Utah. So, right, and so this, I mean, obvious question, does it apply to America? No. It doesn't. Because there's one way for an if-then statement to be true, and it's if the thing Now there's a, and there's another I think there's another group that often as well gets substituted for promises to Israel, right? Who else do we sometimes take promises to Israel? Christians. Yeah, the church, and say something from the Old Testament, right? Promise to Israel. Well, that's us because we're God's chosen people, right? And so there's right. You have to take some care to think. 
what, what did this mean for Israel? And is that what, if any, is the application towards believers today? Right? So if you were talking to somebody, right, and how would you, how would you summarize this if you were to say, well, I don't, I don't know if this applies to us as the United States. How would you justify that? What would you say? Because I'm, I'm sure I, I have friends or family members that would take this and this is us. I think there's a couple of routes we could take. Mm-hmm. One is to say that America is not a godly nation. I remember talking to a friend of mine, and one dispute that a lot of pastors have mm-hmm. is, do you have an American flag oh, yeah. up on stage? Mm-hmm. And so, being that it wasn't my church, and I can you know, kind of give free advice without paying for any consequences, I said, you know, what you ought to do is add a Mexican flag to the American flag and just see what happens. Mm-hmm. You know, which he's not going to do, and that would have been terrible advice if he did, but kind of captures the point that, mm-hmm. you know, why, why do you think God has singled out America as opposed to some other nation? Mm-hmm. But then I think it's just understanding, you know, all of these blessings that are promised are really part of the covenant that God made with Israel at the time. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at Exodus and Exodus 19, I think Leviticus 26, 25 and 26, about the blessings and cursings of mm-hmm. obedience to the law, this is a clear expression of that, you know, mm-hmm. for that covenant nation. And that hasn't, to our knowledge, God has not made a covenant with George Washington to right. resist the holy nation, the right. nation. That's the hopeful optimism of some of the people who founded the country might have thought so, mm-hmm. but that's not the biblical teaching. Yeah, I think when when you mentioned the first part about the Christian nation, like I think everybody that you're talking to would admit, you know, there's Christians and non-Christians within our nation, yeah. and so you know you might kind of with the whole flag ask them, you know, well could this apply to Iran or Iraq or Afghanistan nations where there's a, some Christians, right? So just work walking them through thinking like why would that where are you getting that conclusion so I think there is there a concept within this that has truth not necessarily talking or speaking nationally mm-hmm. uh, and not trying to take it out of context so I understand mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think what you're getting at is something that's important is that many times there are things that we are seeing that are resonating with us that are, we know are true within that passage. And so trying to know the boundary between what is it that's, that I can really see clearly from this passage and what is maybe something I could get somewhere else that really applies to the specifics of where the context. So like here... I think what we're saying a lot of times is that he makes a very specific promise that he will, you know, uh, hear from heaven, forgive their sin, heal their land. My eyes will be open. My ears will be attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and consecrated this house that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there for all time. So there's some very specific focus 
there that we can see is being revealed. And, and so I think when we talk about the fact that we, God listens and hears prayer, that we ought to repent of our sins, those are things that we can find not only here, but in many other, in the New yeah, in the New Testament and the Old Testament. And sometimes that's a good way of explaining that, is that one way we know that this is a truth that applies to all believers is because we see it carried throughout. It starts in the Old, it carries through to the New, it's, com- it's something that's commanded. And so when you think about that nationalizing or taking context, it's really good to ask, is this something that seems to occur only at this place in history? Or is it something that God has said repeatedly to many different people, many different times, many different settings? Yeah, and this is repentance. We are commanded to repent. Exactly. And this is how they are to repent. And so, I mean, that seems that's applicable. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so sometimes you might... It's not necessarily you look at a passage and it's like all or nothing, right? It's like, well, this nothing in this applies to anyone outside of that country. It may be that this is specifically to Israel, but we can find things in there that God is saying to them that we find other places as well that he says to the believers, to the church. And it's not saying that nothing that God has said to Israel, he's said to the church. So he's made many promises to the church as well where there's some, some overlap. Okay. okay, let's talk a little bit. So that, that kind of takes us through, you know, taking things out of context and also, oh, what was that? Uh, the adding of scripture. So now we get into the editing, editing God's mind. This is where there's some revising, okay? So think about the editing process, right? Someone writes a paper or speech, this is what I want to say. You read it, um, no, you don't want to say that, right? You don't want to say that. It would probably be better to say this. And they're, a lot of times they're thinking about the audience, right? Ah, they're not going to like this, right? It would be better if you said this, said it this way. So when we do that with Scripture, many times the aim of it is to dismiss or reimagine or just change portions of scripture which are damaging to whatever it is that we're in conflict with. So there may be something that scripture says that for our time, for our culture, for our setting, that's not popular at the time. Okay. So number one would just be kind of embellishing. Right? Reading current thinking into the Bible and straining the natural reading of scripture to make it fit. So since the onset of Darwinian evolution, Many have sought to tweak their understanding of the Hebrew word for day, yom, is that how you say it? Yom? In the context of the creation account. So, let's flip back to Genesis 1. All right. If Ken Ham was here, he'd be very proud of us. Mm-hmm. Answers in Genesis. Section 1. Genesis 1. And. Somebody want to read one five? God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Yeah. And as we look through, we see in verse eight, God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And so as we go through these things, right? 
Where else do you see it again? God saw that it was good. Verse 13, and there was evening and there was morning, the third day. And so what are some, some ways that people have tried to embellish day and make it what? It's a thousand years with the Lord. A day is like a thousand years. Or an age. It, each day is like, you know, just a, a general period of time. And it's more about the order of things. Right? This happened first, which it could have been 12 billion years. Or, right? And so, right, a couple of things we want to observe just going back to the text. So when we use this word, we see it used uh, with a numerical adjective. So the first day, the second day, right? It's never ever used anywhere else figuratively. So this would be the only time if it was being supposed to be figurative. Looking beyond the creation account, we see that the Hebrew plural for day is never used figuratively. So like five days, three days. The terms morning and evening are never used figuratively in the entire Old Testament and always describe a 24 hour period, okay? And Genesis 1.5, again, designates a day as a period of light and darkness, okay? You can see lots of evidence, scripturally, that point to this is just a day, as we know day. And so where's the evidence that it's not just a 24-hour day? Where's that coming from? What's that? Yeah, yeah, it's coming from the attempt to explain through, you know, Big Bang Theory, Darwinian evolution, whatever that happens to be, something not rooted in Scripture. Okay, well, we found this truth by starting with the assumption that God doesn't exist, and now that we know this is true, we want to put that back into the, the Scriptures and trying to reconcile those, th those two things. So that, and that, that embellishing can happen any time we have a belief that exists outside of Scripture and we want to hold on to that when it comes into contrast or contradiction with the Scriptures. And so it doesn't have to be science. It doesn't have to be gender or sexual norms. It can be anything that we believe about marriage or about parenting or about our gifts or about how church works. If we want to hold that and we're not willing to let go of that, when it contradicts what Scripture says, that's when we start to embellish what Scripture means, right? So uh, that's a good question to ask. If it seems like someone is like changing or twisting the, that meaning or embellishing on it, you might dig a little bit. Why? What? What's the problem for, if this were true? If the Bible were being interpreted that way? Okay. Can you guys think of any places where you've seen in your life or other lives just the desire to kind of embellish? The meaning of a word or words. I'll give you an example. In college, uh, the the sexual norms. It was like, well, the Bible only says you shall not commit adultery. And so they had all these people who were were there thinking about, you know, oh, can I be a believer but still do this or that? Right? They were trying to synchronize some sexual immorality with, well, I think I'm still, right? Yeah, I think 
sometimes is instead of broadening a co the concept to include mm -hmm. your preference, you can shrink oh, yeah? the concept to accommodate you. And you know, so like, you know, like what's lust? Well, lust is when you take uh, the first loop is just curiosity, the second loop is confirmation, then the third, I mean, I've heard that the third loop is lust. Yeah. Then it's like, is it three looks or is it two looks? Or is mm -hmm. it, you know what I'm saying? And it's mm -hmm. kind of like trying to narrow it yeah. down. So oh, this yeah. is okay. Or I've heard the, well, I was appreciating beauty, <laughs> but then after a few minutes, then that would become love. <laughs> right? <laughs> I don't know. Doesn't sound like that's the time limit. It seems a little. After a few minutes. All right. How do people mangle? The second is this you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Can they? Love myself first before That's right. You have to. That's right. Okay, well, let's wrap up with this, maybe this last one. Met I'll see if I can get the syllables. Methodologize. Methodologizing. Save that for the recording. Interpreting the scripture by means of an unproved theory about the Bible's literary origin. All right, so this is when your, your scholars have a hypothesis about how the Bible came to be, and they use that as kind of a basis for interpreting the text. Uh, so you'll see many times liberal circles and colleges where they have departments or courses on Scripture, um, where they approach it kind of in that view we've talked about where instead of Scripture ab above man, it's man above Scripture, right? Thankfully, we're here to explain what's true and what's not about Scripture. So that sometimes there's a belief that the authors of Matthew and Luke plagiarized from Mark. They attached the names of these men, so it wasn't actually Matthew and Luke, it was someone else. And they just used this to gain wide readership. And they used this to try and read between the lines and say, you know, what were they trying, what was their theology, what was their hidden meaning that they were trying to establish by taking from Mark's words and now purporting their own variation, their own different theology. And in that kind of view, there's, there's, they would say, they're basically saying, well, maybe we can't get rid of Mark, but these ones that were plagiarized, they're just have ulterior, ulterior motives. Okay. And again, so what's the key problem when you have this, the methodology is the key thing to understand. What's the root problem here? Yeah. Right. There's not enough there in the scriptures. We've we've got to help it out. Yeah, like one famous example called the um, JETD hypothesis. Mm -hmm. And so it it's the belief that Moses did not write the Pentateuch, mm -hmm. but it was written by four different authors. One uses the term Jehovah, Yahweh. Another one uses Elohim. Then you have the priest and the Deuteronomist who kind of summarizes things, and four of them kind of edited each other and somehow produced you know, the first five books of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of the governing theory of like in Old Testament studies. Mm -hmm. And they go back and forth about who did what and when, and you just kind of lose the meaning you know, of the text because there's no integrated text. They're all like arguing against each other and revising each other. Mm -hmm. You're trying to unearth the meaning. Yeah. 
and it's just super convoluted and ununderstandable. Or like, big is the idea that um, none of most of the Old Testament was not written really written until the exile because um, Jewish scholars weren't in a position, Israeli scholars were not in a position where they had access to enough scholarship to actually be able to produce that. So they had this mm -hmm. whole theory. And so therefore, you look back and everything was constructed in order to um, put forth a narrative of who the Jewish people are and mm -hmm. why they still need to exist as people, mm -hmm. right? And so that basically makes the entire Old Testament a piece of propaganda. Yeah. Constructed yeah. in 500 and right. beyond BC. It, it helps them <laughs> explain away prophecy. Yes. Is a big thing. Yes. Yeah. So it totally changes, yeah, the nature of scripture. Yeah, Jesus seminar stuff where they vote on what Jesus actually said. And, mm -hmm. and I will say that, again, this is the favorite tool of many um, kind of apostate Christians who yep. will say, yep. you know, I used to be gullible like, they don't say it this way, I used to be gullible like you and believe the scriptures, mm -hmm. but this is actually the way it really came about. And it's just kind of a condescending you know, I know you think this is about scripture, and they kind of go into these theories and their methodology. And one of the their tactics is again is to try and through some confident, you know, explanation, kind of put you back and to challenge your faith in the authority and the origins of scripture. And so, if you're not, if you haven't in, had that interaction before, you know, there's kind of like. If you've never heard it, for one, you're like, oh, well, that's wrong. Well, why is it wrong? Okay. <laughs> so it takes a little bit of just time and practice to, to figure out. But it is, in, in essence, it's kind of a simple thing that's going on, but disguised through lots of very convoluted yeah. processes. So that's a good place for us to stop. We'll kind of start on modernizing.